chapter 13, and we have kind of a unique uh, section of scripture we're going to look at tonight as we continue to, to wind through uh, 1 Kings. As we look, just so that we're, we're kind of on the same page, we come to, to 1 Kings and we saw the, the height of Israel as a nation. They, they come under Solomon. Solomon, maybe you remember, Solomon's the guy that God gave a blank check to. God came to Solomon and said to him, when he was a child, a a young person, he said, ask anything you want and I'll do it for you. What do you want? And Solomon at at age 12 was becoming king of the nation. So he asked the Lord for wisdom. So God said, I'll give you wisdom, Solomon, but because you didn't ask for wealth, and because you didn't ask for power, because you didn't ask for peace, I'm going to give you all those things too. So God gave him wisdom and power and money and peace and he had it all. And he he began in the first, probably first half of his reign, he focused on building the temple. And when he was building the temple, he he gathered all these people from all around the 12 tribes of Israel. And he, he basically made them indentured servants they got some pay but they were their job was just to labor for the nation to build the nation and they built the temple and they built his palaces and they built all the stable houses all around the nation where people were gonna or where they were gonna keep the 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 chariots and the horses that solomon had amassed and and he built a separate palace for for one of his wives from uh, egypt and they built all this stuff they spent 20 years just building things And when he came to the end of all that building, he prays a prayer of dedication. And part of the prayer of dedication, part of God's answer, we all know. We've we've said it several times, especially during this particular election season. And that is, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. That the the Lord's response to Solomon was, you guys are going to enter into a time where you turn your back on me. But if you wake up in that time... Know that there's always a way back. Repent. Come to me. I'll forgive. And we can start again. That's the word that God gave. We see Solomon from that point really begin to dabble in things that God told him not to do. So we know there's three things specifically that God said of the kings. Not to multiply wives for themselves. Solomon had more wives than anybody in the Bible. He said not to multiply horses. Solomon had more horses than anybody in the Bible. He said not to multiply gold. Simon had, or Solomon had so much gold, they didn't even count it anymore. So he, he amassed all this stuff. But the Lord told him, if you do this, your heart is going to be turned from me. And at the end of Solomon's reign, one of the sadder voices, or, or verses that we'll read in 1 Kings said, and, and his wives and their attitude and worship and all the ease that he had turned his heart from God. And that's how Solomon ends. He starts really well. He goes out kind of with a whimper. And after Solomon comes his son, Rehoboam. Now we just met Rehoboam last week. And Rehoboam come in and he thinks he's his dad. Now who kept Solomon's kingdom for him? Was it because of Solomon's wisdom that he held the kingdom together? Absolutely not. The Lord said, I did it for you. Even though you're off track in honor of your father David, who never turned his heart from me, I'll keep your kingdom, but your son is going to lose it. And God went and sent a prophet to a man named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam, God said, 
I'm going to give you ten tribes. I'm going to divide the nation and ten of them are going to go to you. And if you will walk with me, if you'll follow these precepts, if you'll walk with me, I will raise up for you a, a monarchy of your family, your name. And so Jeroboam is excited about this. When Solomon dies, Jeroboam comes back and he tells Rehoboam, Solomon's son. So you got Jeroboam, Rehoboam, don't confuse. J goes up and R goes south. Okay, J's north, R south. Jeroboam is the northern kingdom. Rehoboam becomes the southern kingdom. He says to Rehoboam, if you'll let us go, stop making us build, relieve some of the taxes, relieve some of this hardship we've had in our life these last 40 years. If you'll do that, we'll stay together and serve you forever. And Rehoboam, Solomon's son, said, no. I'm going to make it worse. We're going to raise taxes. We're going to indenture you still for more building and more service. I'm going to make you do more than my father ever made you do. And the kingdom splits. Jeroboam goes north. And in the northern kingdom, Jeroboam has ten tribes. Two tribes in the south. The two tribes in the south is Judah and Benjamin. And the ten tribes in the north is everybody else. So everybody else goes up to the north. Now Jeroboam looks around. Now God's promised him he'll do great things for him if he'll, if he'll just walk with him. But Jeroboam says, well, if I let them go down to Jerusalem to worship... And they all walk down to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem's in the southern kingdom. They might, you know, decide they want to stay there. And I'll lose people. And even though I know God promised that he'd give me this, this, I better do something to help God out. You ever try to do something to help God out? It's it's never going to work. Jeroboam goes one step further. Jeroboam says, what I'll do, I don't want him to go down there to worship. There was one central place for worship, right? What was the one central place to worship? The temple in Jerusalem. One way. Remind you of anybody? One way to God. That was it. Well, Jeroboam decided, you know what? I'm going to build a couple up here. And he's going to build one in Bethel. And he's going to build one in in Dan. We're going to see he's going to build the golden calves. And the golden calves were intended to be the footstools of God. God stood on top of them. The golden calves weren't a representative of God. But the problem was, it fit nicely with all the Canaanites because they worshipped a fellow called Baal. And Baal was a bull. So they would join in to worship. And we see a mixture begin to happen in the northern kingdom where they mix in all this idolatry. He took the dates. Remember that we have specific dates like Passover, the Feast of Tabernacle, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They're all on specific dates. Leviticus tells us when they are. Jeroboam changed the dates. So instead of going down to Jerusalem to celebrate, just stay up here and we'll celebrate around a golden calf. Now that all should sound vaguely familiar. The children of Israel did that in Egypt, remember, when they first came out of the Promised Land. So Jeroboam has decided to develop his own religion. He's made himself priest of his own religion. He's gathered around him people, making anybody who wants to be a priest could be a priest. According to God's word, the priest would come from the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi were to be the priest, but Jeroboam, he he cancels all that stuff, and he just creates a whole new animal. 
Now, while we're thinking about this whole new animal and this whole new religious system and this northern kingdom, I want you to understand that this is the foundation of the problem between the nation of Israel and Samaria. You know how at the time of Christ in John chapter 4, when Jesus went to the well, met the woman at the well, he said, I got to go to Samaria. And the Jews said, why in the world would you go to Samaria? Nobody goes to Samaria. On Mount Gerizim today, you can go to Mount Gerizim and there's another temple. And there's a, a form of Judaism. It's not quite the same, but there's a form of Judaism there on Mount Gerizim. In fact, the woman of the well, remember she said to Jesus, the Jews say we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem, but we say we're supposed to worship here in Mount Gerizim. You guys remember the story? We're supposed to come here. That all started back with Jeroboam thousands and thousands of years before. There's Jeroboam dividing the nation, creating his own religion. That becomes the foundation for what divides the people. In about 85 years, maybe 100 years, um, actually it's going to be a little more than that, the northern kingdom, the northern power will be Assyria, and Assyria is going to come down and conquer the northern kingdom and going to take them into captivity. And that will be the end of those ten tribes. You ever heard the concept of the ten lost tribes of Israel? They're not really lost, but that's what people say. The ten tribes are assimilated into Assyria. Later on, Assyria is conquered by Babylon, who also conquered the southern kingdom, and you have all 12 tribes together. We also know from Second Chronicles that all of the nations, all the tribes who didn't agree with what Jeroboam did, who wanted to worship the one true God, they all moved south. So while the two main tribes in the south were Judah and Benjamin, there were representatives of all 12 in the south, and there were representatives of all 12 in the north. If they didn't want to worship God, they went north. If they did want to worship God, they went south. Now, this is kind of the background to where we are tonight. In chapter 13, a man of God is going to go see Jeroboam. God promised Jeroboam he'd bless him, he'd, he'd build this nation out of him, and now when, when we get off track, especially in the Old Testament, God would send the man of God, the prophet. And the prophet would bring the word of God to the people. What was going on? And so we have a unique story we're going to take a look at tonight. In 1 Kings chapter 13, it begins, And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Now it's kind of interesting because if we... Look at the temple, the altar in the temple. The Lord, when he said to build altars, you know, he told them not to make the altar fancy. Do you know why? Because if you make a fancy altar, what are you watching? What are you looking at? You look at the altar. What's the important thing that's happening on the altar? The sacrifice. Sometimes we can get so caught up in the exterior look of something whether it's the building whether it's how we dress whether it's the kind of worship we do whatever we do we get all caught up in the exterior and god said i don't want the exterior to be so fancy or so not fancy or so obnoxious so that that becomes the focus the focus is always supposed to be the sacrifice the sacrifice is who jesus christ what's the main thing jesus is the main thing 
He's the main focus. No matter where we are, no matter what's happening, no matter whether the country is circling the drain or not circling the drain. doesn't matter. Our job remains the same. We have a role, and the main thing remains the main thing. Jesus Christ, the sacrifice, where our eyes should be. But Jeroboam, he built a big old fancy altar. Why? Because he wants people to look at the thing he built. And he put this big old fancy golden calf on it. That's a big deal. In fact, when you go to Dan, still today, if you go to Israel and you travel to Dan, you can go where the golden calf was set up. You can sit on the stones that Jeroboam was at. The same place. Same stuff. It's, it's a kind of a wild place to go to. And when you go there and you, and you sit there, you recognize how far the nation had come. To, in one king... In just a few years, from the height of Solomon to now this kingdom's divided and they're worshiping golden calves. So God sends a man of God, the scripture tells us, a man of God. He's unnamed. No name. Don't even try to figure out who he is. The Bible doesn't tell us his name for a reason. His name is not important. His message, however, is... So Jeroboam standing on the altar. Picture it, he's standing up on this altar. And then in verse 2 it says, And he cried out. Now this he, he, the man of God, cried out against the... You see what it says there? Against the altar. He's talking to an inanimate thing. He's not even talking to Jeroboam. He goes and he cries out against the altar. By the word of the Lord he says, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord... Listen to this. Behold, the child, Josiah by name, will be born to the house of David. And on you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places that burn incense to you. And men's bones will be burned on you. That's, by the way, a very specific prophecy in case you're wondering. Why? Because Josiah isn't going to be born for 300 years. Josiah doesn't come till 2 Kings around chapter 23, something like that. Josiah is the last good king of Judah. And he's going to start a revival. A big revival is going to come up under Josiah. And he's going to tear down all the high places that Jeroboam built. But here the man of God comes to Jeroboam and he cries out against the altar. And he says to this altar, hey, Josiah is going to tear you down. There is only one other place in Scripture, guys, where there is a prophecy this specific. It's in Isaiah. When Isaiah says that he's going to send, that God's going to send his servant, Cyrus. And he names Cyrus, who is a pagan king of the Medo-Persian Empire. He names him a hundred years before Cyrus is born. Isaiah was writ, scroll, rolled up. And his name is there, a hundred years before he's born. This one, Josiah's name, is given 300 years before he's born. And when he's born, he accomplishes or fulfills the word that the prophet gave. The reason that's important is because God's word, throughout the word, God says, I'll tell you the end from the beginning. One of the beautiful things about God's word is it's full of prophecy. Listen, if you are living in the world today... You need to have your eyes open because we are in a time ripe with prophecy. What do you mean? People are always talking about the end of the world. I'm not even talking about the end of the world. Nope. 
I'm talking about Ezekiel. The Bible says that the nation of Israel would find themselves standing alone. And today, the nation of Israel is standing alone. The book of Ezekiel tells us that the young lion of Tarshish, Tarshish is a, a, an ancient name for Britain. Uh, the closest thing to having the United States mentioned in prophecy would be this phrase. It says, a young lion of Tarshish will stand by and do nothing. So, we have the young lion of Tarshish ruled by a uh, president who's not going to back Israel. Israel knows that. One of the things I told my wife right after election, I said, Israel is going to start bombing people. What happened today? Israel launched a missile at a guy. Now, that's pretty intense, by the way. I hope if somebody ever shoots at me, they just use a bullet. Israel used a missile. Did they, get him? they got him. Yeah, they got him. The leader of Hamas, they took out in Gaza. Gaza's upset. Syria's upset. Egypt's upset. Iran's upset. Russia's upset. The UN is going to come against them. The United States is going to sit back and do nothing. And by the way, all of those nations are mentioned in Ezekiel as coming against the nation of Israel in the last days. The scripture tells us that they will launch uh, an attack against Israel and Israel will be caught unawares. That Israel will be ripe for the destruction. That the nations will have all the ability in the world to wipe Israel out and God will stop them. Scripture says that the energy from their weapons will burn for seven years. Now let me ask you something. In the time back when Jesus was walking on the earth, that seemed kind of crazy, didn't it? I mean, the chariot is only going to burn so long. Is that such a stretch today? You are aware that Chernobyl is still burning, right? Chernobyl will burn until it reaches the core of the earth. It won't stop. You can't put out what happened in Chernobyl. For seven years, the scripture says that the, the, the weapons will burn. The scripture also tells us that they're going to use special burial crews who wear special equipment, who find the bodies and mark them with a flag. And then they call for special burial crews that will come through and bury the bodies. Seemed kind of interesting, doesn't it? Odd for the time in which it was written. Not so odd for our time. And we, maybe, are sitting right on the cusp of it it's occurrence. There's things in, in Scripture that, that lay out for us, events that are on the horizon. And I'm not talking about the end of the world. I'm just talking about a battle where God says he's going to save the people and the destruction that God's going to bring. In history, we've seen like little glimpses. It's close, but it doesn't quite match up with what the Word says. But nowadays, today, we can see those things. Bible talked about it thousands of years before they had guns and bullets. It talked about the burial crews and the way that they would bury bodies of a nuclear uh, explosion before there was any thought of a nuclear 
weapons thousands of years before. The Bible is a book of prophecy. It's living. It tells the truth. And the events we can see beginning to come together. Wasn't that long ago Iran and Russia weren't pals. Iran and Russia are pals. You had paying attention to the news, who is Israel the most irritated with right now? Iran. Why? Because they're trying to build a nuclear bomb. And if they do, where do you think they're going to drop it? They're not going to launch it at us. Where are they going to drop it? On Israel. What do they want? The destruction of Israel. They want it obliterated. So Israel's upset. Who's giving them the technology? Who's giving them the, the plutonium and the uranium? Where's it coming from? Russia. For years, Turkey begged and begged and begged NATO to let him in. And NATO said, oh, we don't really care about you, Turkey. Guess what? Ezekiel said Turkey would join with Russia and Iran. Any idea who's all together now? They're all together. Listen, the board is set. The pieces are moving. And God said it would happen. Now, fortunately for you and I, we're kind of a long ways away. But the Bible says, as a nation, we're not going to do nothing. I don't care what President Obama says, he will not go. He might threaten, he might shake his fist, but he's not going to do nothing. That's what the Bible says will happen. There's where we find ourselves. And that's not the most amazing of prophecies. Josiah being named by name. I mean, when you have a child, do you know that God knows what you're going to name your child before you know what you're going to name your child? Can you imagine God saying 300 years before you name your child, not only the name that you're going to give your child, but what your child's going to accomplish in their life? That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Who else can do that? God. Listen. Don't be deceived. There is no other religion on earth that can make the claim, the prophecy, that Christianity and the Bible can make. Nobody. There's no other religion on earth that has the archaeological evidence. There's no other thing on earth anywhere remotely close. Nothing. It's true. That's why in Romans 1, when God talks about the judgment that he brings, that we find our nation in the midst of now, when the Lord talks about the judgment that he brings in Romans chapter 1, it's that they, though they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God. God says, you're without excuse. His invisible attributes are known to anyone in creation. He talks about in Romans chapter 1, that everything is made up of particles so small you can't see them. The chair that you sit on, if you were to, to, to take the different components in that chair to the smallest, minutest point, the greatest thing in that chair would be empty space. The solidity of that chair is accomplished by the speed in which the molecules are moving in the components that make up that chair. If you fall down... I'll pick you up. <laughs> but that thing, that Romans chapter 1, think back to when Romans was written. 
We're talking about guys walking around in sandals and skirts. Okay? We don't have a lot of stuff happening. You know, there's some neat things going on at that time. I mean, in, in, in medicine and different things, some stuff was happening at that point. But we didn't even have the concept that Paul writes about in Romans chapter 1. Scientifically, we had no idea. Every one of us when we were in school, did we study about the crazy people saying the earth was flat? Do you know that the Bible says the earth is round? 2,000 years before man decided it was? Do you know that the Bible said that there are pathways in the ocean? Do you also know that the nation of Israel never once was a seafaring people? Never once did they take a boat out in the water? They thought everything bad came from the sea. So they stayed away from the sea. They weren't in the sea. They didn't want to be around the sea. They stayed off of it. But the Bible says in the ocean there are paths. What do we use today still in all the shipping lanes? What do they use? The currents in the ocean that take you from one place to another. The Bible said that thousands of years before people understood it. It's all there. All the other world religions have crazy ideas about the earth being on the back of Atlas. You ever heard that? Or the earth floating on the back of a, of a turtle that's walking on a wire that's standing on an alligator that's perched over... You know, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? You know that the Bible says that the earth hangs on nothing in space? Thousands of years before men knew. How's, how's all this there? Because it is different than any and every other book ever wrote. That's why God can name a guy 300 years before he's born. He knows the end from the beginning. So it's an incredible prophecy that we see this unnamed guy bringing to Jeroboam. Now Jeroboam, like some people when they hear the prophecies of God, doesn't like what the man of God has to say. Well, let's see what happens. So he gave the sign. In the same day he said, this is a sign that the Lord has spoken. The altar will split in half and the ashes on it will be poured out. So here you have Jeroboam. It says he's, he's burning incense. The idea on the altar was that they would burn whatever animal and the smoke of that was the incense going up into heaven. So you have the ashes, some kind of animal on this altar. It's like a giant pit barbecue. It's all burning there. And the man of God says, here's how you'll know that what I say is true. The altar that you're standing on is going to split in half and all the ashes are going to flow out on the ground. Now when he says that, Jeroboam gets mad. So it came to pass, when Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God who cried out against the altar in Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Arrest him! Look what it says. Then his hand, which he stretched out toward him, withered so that he could not pull it back. It means that as he stuck out his hand, his arm, his hand and arm atrophied. Have you ever seen someone who's hurt their arm? We had a kid when I was in high school who got in a motorcycle accident and, and his arm was fine, except he couldn't, he couldn't move it. He still to this day had never been able to move his arm. And his arm atrophied. So it became brittle. It shrunk up. The muscle got real small, you know. And it ends up being more in the way. I mean, you're really in danger of hurting yourself by this arm that can't be moved. So when he says he stuck out his arm and it withered, his arm withers. The, the muscles atrophy. He can't move his arm. It's, it's paralyzed. Not stuck out, probably by his side. But it just shrivels up. That'd be a bit of a trip. 
Anybody disagree? You know, you think, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Arrest him. And your arm shrivels up and just kind of droops there. I don't know. I think I might want to listen a little more intently to what he said. Do you know that the Bible tells us these kind of things are going to happen again? The book of Revelation tells us that in the last days, God's going to send two prophets into Jerusalem. And they're going to come to Jerusalem and they're going to tell Jerusalem about the Messiah. The Messiah that the nation of Israel has missed, Jesus Christ. They're going to refer to him and that people are going to come and try to kill him. And when they come and try to kill them, the Bible says that fire is going to proceed out of their mouth and consume them. Now, I'm not sure how that looks. But if I'm standing there and these two witnesses were talking and I'm just a bystander and somebody tries to kill the two witnesses, they, they, I mean, they're going to be in Jerusalem. It kind of can get a little chaotic there sometimes. And somebody pulls a gun and runs at them. The Bible says fire is going to consume. I don't know if that means they'll just catch on fire, poof, while they're right there. I don't know if that means the guy's going to speak because it can be a, a Hebrew, Hebraic idiom for speaking the word of God and someone just dropping. We saw Ananias and Sapphira, right? They just dropped to the ground. They were dead. I don't, I don't know how it's going to look. All I know is when those kind of things happen, it Ought to grab somebody's attention. Bible goes on to tell us that nobody's going to listen to him. And at a, at a certain point, God's going to take his hand of protection off the prophets. And the people in Jerusalem are going to kill him. That's kind of sucks for them. Not really a good way to, to feel about that. Except the people are going to leave their bodies in the street for three and a half days and celebrate Christmas every day for three and a half days. The Bible says the people in Israel are going to give each other gifts because they're celebrating these two guys being dead. And the Bible says at the end of three and a half days, they're going to get up. They're going to pronounce their judgment and they're going to ascend into heaven. It's going to happen. Just like this guy's arm withering when he pointed at the prophet. It's going to take place. Scripture tells us all about it. It says, at that moment in verse 5, the altar was split apart and ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of God. So just like God said, here's the proof. I'm going to split the altar. It doesn't say he walked over and whacked it. It just says the altar split apart. The ashes fell out on the ground, and Jeroboam's sitting there with his, you know, Tyrannosaurus Rex arm. And the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me, that my hand might be restored. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as before. Now, how, much, how many signs do you, do you need? Let me just ask you that. How many signs do you need? I hear people all the time saying, Lord, just show me a sign. How many signs do you need? But what we learn about the Bible, folks, is that men never learn from signs. Ever. So his hand withers. The thing breaks. He says, pray that my hand would be okay. And his hand's okay. His arm comes back. Cool. Does he change? Nope. 
He don't change. He don't change a lick. Look what the scripture tells us. So, the king said to the man, why don't you come home with me and refresh yourself and I'll give you a reward. A minute ago he was going to have him arrested. Now he's ready to give him a reward. But the man of God said to the king, if you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of God, saying, you will neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. So now the prophet leaves. He tells the guy, God told me not to eat here. I can't eat. I can't drink. I'm supposed to come to you one way and go home another. So he had a pretty specific, clear word from the Lord, right? He knew what it was. He knew what God's instruction was for him. So we come to the second part of the story. In verse 11 it says, Now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. Uh, They also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went, who came from Judah. So he said to his son, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode on it. And he went after the man of God, and he found him sitting under an oak, And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he responded, I am. And he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. Verse 16, he said, I cannot return with you nor go in with you, neither can I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. For I have been told by the word of God, You shall not eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by going the same way you came. So he said to him, Well, I too am a prophet, just like you. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying to me, to bring you back to my house where you may eat bread and drink water. You see what the next phrase says? He was lying to him. So he told the prophet, I'm a prophet too. And God told me, he sent an angel and told me, you can come to my house. So he went back with him and ate bread at his house and drank water. The scripture tells us that we are to test the spirits. And the number one way to test the spirits is by the word of God. God had already given him his word. Do you know how many places in scripture the Lord says, I am the Lord, I change not. He don't change. He may relent from judgment according to his mercy and compassion. But he does not change. His word doesn't change. Paul said, even if I come to you, or what else? Or an angel, and give to you any other gospel other than what you have received. Let him be anathema. Accursed. Yes, sir. Let him be be accursed. Now, have you guys heard of any of that stuff before? Okay, the... And I'm not, believe me, I'm not trying to bash nobody. I'm just saying, this is what the word says. 
Remember the word, the prophetic word of God? Remember the word, the scientific word of God? I mean, you do realize that we bled our first president to death. Probably had a Bible right next to his bed. You know what the Bible said? Life is in the blood. But we thought, because the doctors know more than everybody else, right? We thought the sickness is in the blood. So we drained it all out of him. And he died. A couple thousand years earlier, the Bible said life was in the blood. This same book, this is the book that has presented to us the gospel. This is the same book that has told us the way through which salvation can come. And the warning that Paul gives, same with this guy. The man comes to him and says, an angel told me that you're supposed to come to my house. An angel told me that what God has already told you isn't quite right and I have the real deal for you. And it led him to his destruction. Test the spirits. One of the things I I will always be a big proponent of, always, it'll never change, and that is that the word of God is my foundation that I cling to, not my experience. It doesn't mean that I haven't really experienced things, that I haven't really seen things. Maybe I don't quite have it all jiving together yet with the word, and I need God to show me. I'm all open to that, but the bottom line is, if it's in the Word, it's good. If it's not in the Word, I'm not okay with it. Because that's the road that leads someplace else. That's the road that takes us somewhere else. Then what are you governing what's true or false by? A book that has amazing prophecies, a book that has incredible acts of scientific understanding thousands of years before man understood those things, a book that has so much archaeological evidence behind it that there's nobody that refutes the history in the, on the pages of God's Word. This book, we're just going to chuck that and we're going to follow something else. How can we do that? This guy comes off the path that God had for him because of another man's experience. Well, I had an angel tell me, you can come to my house. Once I was, I I had a a plant, a church plant in 29 Palms in California, and we were meeting, we actually became, God blessed us, and we had opportunity to to become the, the arm of, I don't know, how to say it. We became the church for the base in 29 Palms. So a Calvary Chapel pastor became the teaching pastor on a Marine Corps base for probably three or four years. We were there. We did Sunday morning service on base. They have since closed that door and kicked them out. But we were there for a while. And God really blessed that time. And while we were there, I had a guy come in one time and he comes up and he's and he, and he comes walking up the aisle where we hadn't started yet. We're getting ready to start. And he came to me and he said, hey, uh, the Lord told me I, that I'm supposed to come here and share something with your people. And I said, as soon as the Lord tells me, we'll be good to go. I said, God hasn't given me that word and you can't have access to my people. But if you want to get together with me afterwards, let's have some coffee. Let's sit. Let's pray. Let's talk. Let me hear what you have to say. You know, what God's put on your heart. And and it may be that that that's the way the Lord will direct me. I'm not closed off to it. 
But just because you say, God said, he's, if he can tell you, can he tell me? That's the beauty of marriage, you know, because when God gives us husband and wife, he says we're one flesh. He doesn't just speak to half of us. If the Lord calls me to Idaho, you know what he'll do to my wife? He'll call her too. So it makes things really easy to see. Hey, is this what God has for us? Oh, look at that. We both agree. We can't agree on where to eat or what movie to watch or what's a show to watch on TV, but we agree on where to go. That's got to be God, right? So here this, this I, I actually met with a guy and I talked with him and I heard what he had to say. And really, nothing that he had to say was bad. There was not any problem with what he had to say. Uh, he just never came back again. He came, we talked, we had coffee, we prayed. And, and he was gone. But, but um, I'm not going to. St- I will never give access by saying, here's a guy. He, he says God has something for us. Let him talk. If we're doing a service where we're, we're reaching out in the, in the gifts of prophecy and word of knowledge and all that kind of stuff, hey, great. But otherwise, the Holy Spirit never interrupts himself. Are you aware of that? Never seen the Holy Spirit interrupt himself. Holy Spirit... He's able to get the message out that he wants out the way he wants to get that message out. This guy, he, this guy just tells him, an angel told me. And right then, he's like, oh, cool. Well, you're a prophet too. I'm a prophet. God must have told you to tell me. Cool. Let's go eat. Let's go eat. Man, he's a young guy. And an old prophet lies to him. Do you know that people will lie to you in church? <laughs> If that comes as a shock to you, let me try to explain that the people sitting next to you are to the core sinners. Given an opportunity, they will sin. If the chance to tell the truth or a lie comes and the truth was going to look better for them, they'll tell the truth. If a lie is going to help them out, what do you think is going to happen? Now, they might feel bad about it later, or they might not. But people in church lie. Do you know people in church steal? Oh, you've got to be kidding me. Surely I could leave $100 out on this seat and it'll still be there in a week. What do you think? It's a church. Holy people go there. No, they don't. There's no such thing as holy people, for one thing. The people that come to a church are people who need, sick people who need to be well. And sick people who need to be well will take $100 off a seat. I promise. Sick people come to a hospital. Sinners come to church. It's where we belong. When we recognize that's who we are, it's a good place for us to be. This old prophet lies to him. He believes him. Look at what happens in verse 20. Now it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. Now, I want you to listen to this, because this is wild. If you could read this in the Hebrew, it would be really wild for you. It says, now it happened, as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back, and he, that word he, is referencing the word of the Lord. That means the, the spirit who came upon the prophet spoke through the prophet. That the prophet's sitting there eating, and all of a sudden he cried out to the man of God, who came from Judah and said, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you. But you came back and ate bread and drank water in the place 
which the Lord said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. Now, that doesn't sound like great table discussion, does it? What do you think the old man feels like right now? What do you think the young guy feels like right now? You lied to me? And I believed you? Do you think he blames the old man? I don't think he does. I think he goes, you know, God told me. God told me. He revealed to me what he wanted me to do. I should have stuck with what God told me to do instead of listening to to somebody else. The old man, I don't think the old man feels bad. You know why? He's an old prophet who lives in the northern kingdom in the center of false worship and idolatry. I think this is the first time the old man prophesied in years and years and years. And I think he's sitting there at the table and the spirit of God came upon him and he spoke this word, not even really understanding what he was doing or why he was doing it. I think that's the whole concept that the Hebrew has within it. That as he's sitting there eating, he lifts up his head to talk and out of his mouth comes the word of the Lord to this young prophet. Convicting him of being a liar and letting the young man know you shouldn't have listened. You had the word. How much more are we responsible for? We have the word, right? In the United States, there's nowhere you can go where you can't get a Bible. You need a Bible? I have like 20 of them in my office. I'll be happy to give you a couple. I keep one in every room in my house, just about. So I'm never too far from one if I need one. And we, we will be responsible, whether we ever read it or not, to know what's in the Word. God gave it. It's there. You can ignore it. But we're responsible for what God's Word lays out for us. So the scripture says in verse 23, So it was after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk, he saddled the donkey for him and the prophet whom he had brought back. And when he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his corpse was thrown onto the road, and the donkey stood by it, and the lion stood by it. And there men passed by, and they saw the corpse thrown on the road, and the lion standing by the corpse And they went and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. So the old prophet gives him a donkey. Feels bad, gives him a donkey. He takes a donkey. On the way, he runs into a lion. The lion kills him. And then the lion sits down next to him. And the donkey sits down next to him. Now think about what an odd sight that would be as you're passing by. I still kind of wonder the concept of the men who pass by. If I see a lion... I'm I'm not sure I'm passing by. They pass by and they look. Oh, look, lion killed the guy. And he's just sitting there. Didn't eat him. He's just sitting there next to him. And even weirder, the donkey is sitting on the other side. Dead guy in the road, lion on one side, donkey on the other side. I can't help but in that see the lion in the tribe of Judah... And the symbol of the servant in the donkey on one side and the lion on the other. That the, <laughs> that, the, that the man of God, that the man of God, there he is on the ground, <coughs> dead, 
he's not lost. He's not spent an eternity in hell. He still belongs to God. He was disobedient. He died. That's something we're all going to experience, isn't it? Every one of us, unless the Lord comes back tomorrow, is going to experience dying. It's not the boogeyman. It's just passing from here to the hands of Jesus. Or passing from here into a place of torment waiting for the judgment of God to send us to hell. It's one or the other. So it's, it's not some horrible thing unless we're not a believer. This guy, he's a believer. He's a servant of God. He, he messed up. The Bible says there is a sin that leads to death. There are things that we do that are going to cause us to die. I could choose to live my life in a way that's going to bring upon me an early death. The Bible tells us. Tells us the truth. So he dies. The news comes back to the old prophet. The old prophet hears, hey, if there's a guy dead in the middle of the road with a donkey sitting on one side and a lion sitting on the other side, chances are this is the prophet. So when the prophet who had brought him back the way heard it, he said, it's the man of God who was disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has delivered him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. And he spake to his son, saying, Saddle a donkey for me. So they saddled it, and he went and found his corpse thrown on the road. And the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. And the lion did not eat the corpse, nor tear the donkey. And the prophet took up the corpse of the man of God, and laid it on the donkey and brought it back. Now, I want you to tell me how trippy that must have been. The Bible don't say the lion left. When the prophet comes, he finds the lion on one side, the donkey on the other, and the dead guy in the middle. And he goes in between the two and puts the corpse on his donkey. So evidently, he understands that the lion's done. That the sign is over. That this is judgment from the hand of God. He understands all that. And so he brings the corpse back. And he laid... And the, and the prophet took up the corpse of man and laid it on the donkey and brought it back. So the old prophet came to the city to mourn for him. Nobody mourned for the man of God. The old prophet mourns for him, gives him a time of mourning and buries him. And he put the corpse in his own tomb. And they mourned over him saying, Alas, my brother. And so it was after he buried him that he said to his sons, When I am dead, you bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his. I think the old prophet is hoping that the resurrection, whatever happens to the young prophet's bones, will happen to his. Lay my bones beside him. For the saying which he cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines in the high places which are in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. See, the old prophet didn't believe what the young prophet was doing. He didn't believe that was the word of God. He didn't believe that it was all true. So he fools the young prophet. He brings him to his house. And when he sees the Spirit of God come upon him and he, and he hears the prophecy that he utters, and when he sees the way the young prophet dies, and when he sees the events that transpire, then he knows that the word that that guy brought is really going to happen. Every single word of prophecy in the Word of God is going to happen. We are not always so clear of vision and looking at how something's going to happen in the future. But we're really clear of vision looking back and seeing how it happened in the past. 
And we can know by his track record, God's never wrong. Ever. Cyrus came. Josiah came. Jesus came. All prophesied in the pages of Scripture. Look at what it says in verse 33. After this event, Jeroboam did not turn away from his evil way. But again, he made priests from every class of people for the high places wherever he wished. He consecrated him and he became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam, so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. Remember, God gave Jeroboam a promise. If you walk with me, I'll be with you all days of your life. I'll build for you a kingdom. Jeroboam turned against the Lord. And so he lost it all. Those things still remain true today. They still are real. The Lord has given unto us an opportunity to receive a relationship with God. Salvation that comes by Christ alone. Faith in Him. The gospel that Paul said, if any other man tweaks, let him be anathema, even if it's an angel that brings it. This is the only gospel, the only truth. These days, it's not very tolerant for people to say that, unless it's real. Yeah? If I say to you, if you go running out that door tonight, and you get out that second door, there's a giant cliff, and you're going to plunge to your death. It's intolerant for me to stop you if what I'm saying is a lie. If what I'm saying is true, it's loving for me to tell you, stop. It's loving for me to say, the way you live your life is sin. It's loving for me to say, the judgment of God is upon our nation. And we have a job to do. Are you doing your job? God's called us. We are hands and feet, right? He could do a better job himself, and the book of Revelation tells us he will. One day he's going to send angels to fly around the world and tell everybody. But until then, it's you and me. We're the hands and feet. We're the voice. We're the mouth. Take the word of God for what it says. Don't be afraid to go where he sends you. To love who he says to love. To rebuke who he says to rebuke. To forgive who he says to forgive. To have mercy on whom he says to have mercy. Don't be afraid. You can stand on the word. It will never be wrong. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for an opportunity, God, just to come before you and study your word and, and for this little break between a, a rash of kings, good and bad. Lord, we pray as we look at this young prophet and the mistakes that he made and the faithfulness that he had. May we learn, God, to be faithful to your word, to hold fast to your word, to not allow someone else to come along and say, oh, come on. Surely that's not what God means. Surely now in the 21st century, we know that the word of God needs to change. That it needs to, 
to grow, develop into this, more tolerant, more accepting of any lifestyle. Hey, we're all sinners saved by grace. Every man, woman, and child on earth. No one's better than anybody else. We all need a Savior who alone is mighty to save. God, may we stand fast on your word that we might know this is true. You told us in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. (coughs) It's true, but there's no other way. There's no other door. Just one. It's the truth. And it's loving for us to share the truth. Lord, we pray that you would equip your church to be who she is called to be. Pray that each one in your church would come to know the love that you have for your bride. That you love your church. And sometimes we let you down, but it doesn't change the fact that you love us. That you give yourself for us. That you will empower us and strengthen us to be the witnesses we need to be. We just need to give ourselves away. Our Lord, we pray that you would help us day by day, moment by moment, cling to the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.